Hey, so I've been worried for some time now that our Patreon spots are getting too strange, too in the stream of consciousness vein for a serious political chat. Like today, we have Jesse Helmer, who's the deputy mayor of London, to talk about how progressive politics can work in London. Something that's like pretty important if we are going to form a progressive majority in Ontario in the next election. Because much as it has been nice to rally around the flag of Premier Doug Ford, I would sure rather have Premier Stephen Del Duca or Andrew Horvath next time uh, than him. So, you know, pretty important stuff. And should we start an episode like that with some silly fake movie trailer like we did last time? Some stream of consciousness rambling about adjusting to life in isolation? Sort of like how today's lunch was just a hunk, not a slice, a torn hunk of bread with several tablespoons of peanut butter piled on. Sort of akin to an ice cream cone, except I'm going to stop right there. Because this is serious. We shouldn't talk about that kind of stuff. This is serious business. And serious business needs your support through Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash ontarioloud or ontarioloud.ca and hit that Patreon link, you can support us for anywhere from 3 to 5 to 15 bucks a month. It makes all the difference in the world. That ad which we spent just $10 on, reached 2,500 people and was shared 50 times to tons and tons of new audiences. It also had some very interesting debate in the comments that I would not recommend reading, but it's helped us reach more people. We saw a boost in our listens. And if you are passionate about progressive politics and intelligent discussion getting out there, I encourage you to head on over to Patreon and support us. On to the show. Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by a recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Alexi White. And today we are going to get out of the GTA Toronto bubble and get to know a region of Ontario better. I've thought that many times some of the issues that take precedence in the media and even on this pod can sometimes be Toronto-centric or overly focused on how this affects those living in Canada's largest city. Judging by the results of our recent Ontario Loud census, some of our listeners out there also agree. Queen's Park is in Toronto, and much of our politics plays out with who could win the 416 and 905 regions, with nearly every government that I can remember needing to win a majority of seats there in order to form a government provincially or federally. Now, I was lucky enough recently to travel across the province during my recent run for Ontario Liberal leader, and to say that some feel that the GTA gets too much attention is certainly an understatement. I heard that affordable housing is a major issue in every community across Ontario, that transit and transportation are huge problems in cities and towns everywhere, and that there really are unique cultural, economic, and industrial differences across Ontario that are specific to each region that requires a specific solution, not one made for everyone. What's interesting to note is that while Ontario has 14.5 million people, the GTA is only 6.5 million, meaning more people live outside the so-called center of the universe than in it. So to help us with this discussion, we are happy to have on the pod London's Deputy Mayor, Councillor for Ward 4 since 2014, partner to our frequent guest, Kate Graham, and soon father-to-be, Jesse Helmer. Jesse, welcome to Ontario Loud. Well, thanks for having me on the pod. So Jesse, before we get to why London's better than Toronto and why southwestern Ontario is better than GTA, how are you personally managing during this crisis? How's the baby room coming? Are you two ready for what's next? Yeah, I mean, all things considered, I think we're uh, doing pretty well. I know we're very fortunate going into uh, the pandemic to be in a pretty good uh, 
situation. Um, I, we're not facing the same kind of challenges as many people across uh, Ontario. You know, we've been able to adapt our work uh, pretty easily uh, to the reality out there. And um, I would say overall, you know, things are going very well. It's obviously an amazing time for us. We're expecting our first kids. We're doing the putting the nursery together and getting all that stuff. I spent uh, this, this afternoon after work until we were having dinner putting together the nursery and uh, everything's coming together. It's a very exciting uh, time, but it's been uh, very challenging because we were in the middle of this very serious public health crisis um, and that has uh, turned a lot of things upside down. So there's a lot of uh, work going on at the City of London. Uh, people in the community are really stepping up in amazing ways. So we went into it in a good, in a good position and it's, uh, it's going pretty well. Awesome. Um, tell us a bit about South, Southwestern Ontario. Um, a lot of people misunderstand uh, maybe what a city like London uh, is about. Uh, so tell us what makes you guys unique. London is an amazing city. I'll tell you, though, um, when, I, when I moved here, I was moving from uh, Toronto and I didn't really want to go. And at the time, I thought London was kind of boring and uh, not really an exciting place to uh, to go. I thought it was kind of conservative and uh, not that interesting. And I actually found out that London is a pretty cool city. Uh, we have a lot of different neighborhoods, and you can kind of find the kind of neighborhood you're looking for, almost regardless of where you're coming from or what you're into. So London is uh, about four hundred thousand people. Um, it's one of the sec. It's one of the se- second gross, fa- second fastest growing cities um, in the uh, country. And, um, you know, until uh, very recently, I would say the economy was really trucking along pretty well. Uh, So there's a lot of really interesting uh, things going on in London. It's got a really great River Valley trail system, which, you know, a lot of people don't know about until you've lived here for a while. Uh, It runs all up and down north, south, east, west, um, giving people opportunities to get around the city, um, whether they're walking or running or riding their bikes. Really very nice all up and down the Thames River. Um, good diversified economy, great schools, you know, amazing healthcare, uh, which we're certainly seeing um, in the middle of this crisis now. Um, and so London's really got a lot uh, to offer. Uh, I think we're seeing that actually one of the reasons it's growing so fast is that a lot of people are moving from other places in Ontario. They're relocating to London. Uh, I think they're cashing out some of their higher priced real estate and, and financing bargains uh, here in the city, even if their job continues to be somewhere else. So, Jesse, I'm I'm wondering what you think are some of the biggest challenges facing the region. I I know we talk about the economy a lot, and that you know London maybe 50 years ago or or, or even less had dozens of national and international corporations headquartered there. But you know today many of them are gone, and much of southwestern Ontario has seen some significant and serious economic challenges for a little while. Why do you think? Maybe it hasn't been as much of a priority for governments. And what do they need to do now to help sort of build this region back up economically? I think it's a good question. Um, you know, London, as much as I say, you know, it's a great city and there's lots of opportunity here. That's true. But I sometimes I the way I describe London is that there's kind of two cities. You know, there's a city where, you know, people are doing pretty well. They got pretty good jobs. They're pretty happy. They're They're well connected. They got lots of recreation opportunities, their families are doing well, their schools are pretty great. And then there's a second city where, you know, people are not doing so well. There's people who have really crippling addictions, major mental health problems. They may have been out of the workforce for a long time. Uh, They're really struggling. we got people who are living unsheltered on the streets, and we're talking hundreds of them. The injection drug use population in London is something like 6,000 people. 
uh, out of 400,000. So there's some pretty significant problems uh, in the community. And depending on sort of which of those cities you kind of spend most of your time in, I think that's an easy way of thinking about it. It's better or worse, you know, and, and I think a lot of the, the issues and a lot of the areas where we're trying to focus government resources and where we need help is with the folks who are facing those multiple different challenges, you know, getting our act together when it comes to uh, healthcare services for people who are living unsheltered, making sure they actually work for them. So we've been setting up things like supervised consumption service initiatives like that in the last couple of years to tr- really try and make a difference for people who are facing a lot of challenges in their life and, and trying to turn those things around. So what London needs is a lot of what many cities in, in Ontario need, which is a much better income support for people who are low income. You know, we know and we're seeing, unfortunately, with a pandemic like COVID-19, the social determinants of health are a major factor, right? I think when we look back at the pandemic, the people who have to keep going to work because they don't have any other choices, the people who don't have any kind of nest egg uh, to fall back on to help them with their cash flow problems, these are the people who have to keep showing up and keep showing up at these low-paid jobs. It really puts a lot of pressure on on folks who are um, at the lower end of the income spectrum. So, you know, progressive policy that's going to support... Uh, people help them get into the workforce if they're not in it, uh, help them uh, look after the very basic needs like rent and being able to afford groceries. And right now we live in a world where, you know, Ontario Works is not getting you anywhere near the money you need to afford a place to live in, in London. The vacancy rate for, you know, one bedroom apartments, bachelor apartments is extremely tight in the city of London. Um, so the the affordable housing crunch is really, really extreme. And it's really focused on that sort of end of the market. So you can find really fancy luxury apartments. Those are easy to rent, uh, but you have to have the money. And and so that's where I think a lot of the challenges are. You know, it's not for people who are kind of uh, upper middle class and pretty yeah. comfortable. It's it's really with people who have multiple different challenges. Well, and I, and I think you and your council and, and London has done a good job identifying and acknowledging those problems and challenges and 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 being willing to uh, to take those sort of harm reduction and, and, and best practices to heart when trying to tackle those. You said a couple of magic words there. One was basic. Another one was income. I know you and I have talked about in the past, and, and now it's it's particularly uh, timely. I'm, I'm sure if, if we were an area where we could have another pilot that you'd be more than happy to have London, uh, London feature that. Yeah, basic income was included in our mayor's advisory panel. We had a sort of panel look at what we could do about poverty a couple of years ago. And one of the recommendations coming out of that was we should make London one of the pilot sites for what the province was planning. Uh, you know, they chose a couple of different cities for that. And of course, then the Conservatives canceled it, which was an absolute travesty. You know, that would have helped. That would have helped. You know, I think we're seeing now the uh, virtues, you know, even in the emergency situation where they're trying to push money out the door to people to make sure that they can look after their basic income security needs. I think we're seeing how important that is uh, now that it's affecting a broader range of the population. Uh, the truth is that that was the situation for many people for a long time, right? Where they don't know how they're going to pay for things. They don't have a lot of choices. The amount of money they're getting from government doesn't cover the basic things that they need to buy. So I think what we're seeing with the uh, CERB and some of the other income support measures is the value of of acting quickly and just getting money to people and letting them do what they need to do with the money they're getting from government to look after their own income security. So I don't know when we can get back to... Um, you know, a more dignified, more effective way of providing income support to people. I think there's lots of different ways to do it. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, one big program, but I think we need to start closing in all those gaps as soon as we possibly can, because the current system is not working. It wasn't working before the pandemic. And I think it's just showing us how, uh, 
insufficient it was. And he set the amount at $2,000 per month. You look back and you say, well, geez, Ontario Works is nowhere near that. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So I just wanted to focus a little bit um, back to politics. And because London has always been a hotbed for politics, and there have been numerous political leaders from London, like Premiers David Peterson and John Robarts. And a lot of people say the Ontario Liberal Party itself started in southwestern Ontario with farmers uniting and organizing politically. What do you think the region needs to do now to try and sort of stay on top of mind with with what's going on and and sort of needing potentially more support despite having a lower growth rate and and, and fewer people. You know, it's interesting because we've got uh, Monty McNaughton, who's in cabinet uh, just beside us in Lambton, Kent, Middlesex, and Jeff Urich, you know, part of his uh, riding includes London. But what you see is that the conservative base in southwestern Ontario is primarily rural. And so most of their members are, are from those areas. And I think the cities um, in the last election, you know, they, they went even more progressive. Uh, they went to the NDP uh, in the last round. And, and in London, we've got three of the four ridings are held by the NDP. And, you know, I think a lot of people, if you're not from London, you might be surprised by that. You think, oh, I thought London was kind of a conservative town. And, you know, and that's not really the case. You know, London's elected a lot of progressive politicians in the last couple of decades, um, and they've done that at the provincial level. They're doing it at the federal level with Liberals and NDP as well. And it's really just in the riding that's pretty rural that they elect any Conservatives at all. And so I think in the environment we're in right now, I think it's really the government that needs to kind of shift to get on board with London's priorities rather than London shifting to get on board with the, the government's priorities. Because... You know, we in mid-sized cities have particular kinds of issues, and we need to be able to move people around the city affordably. We need to have a partner, Queen's Park, who really understands that and who gets the value of investing in in cities like uh, London. A lot of the projects we need to do are a lot cheaper than they are in in more built-out cities where land values and everything are more expensive. And so I think we, we have to do our work to kind of convince people of the value of these things. But I think it's also incumbent on the province to uh, recognize a good idea when we put one in front of them, uh, fund it and uh, and make it happen. That's interesting because uh, now we've talked about transit and we've talked about a lot of social programs and it sounds like the things that London needs are very similar to a lot of the things that uh, other parts of Ontario need, whether they're big or small. So it's a good reminder that although we're maybe different parts of Ontario are very different, uh, a lot of the solutions, you know, people still have the same needs they need to get from A to B in a, an efficient and affordable way and they need support of income or um, health or, or other parts of their lives when, uh, when times are tough. Um, and those things are universal. Yeah, I used to say we need transit just like Toronto, except we can do 24 kilometers of uh, rapid transit for the cost of two kilometers of subway. <laughs> it's a great investment, yeah. So thinking sort of back over the last 15 to 20 years of politics in the Southwest, if we look at 2003 and 2007, uh, Dalton McGinty was elected to two consecutive majorities, winning most of the seats in London, in Windsor, in Kitchener-Waterloo and surrounding um, more rural areas as well, even. Uh, by 2014, Kathleen Wynne's majority coalition looked a little bit different. A lot of those Southwest seats were lost to the opposition parties in that period of time. Uh, what what do you think happened or has happened over the last 15 to 20 years uh, of uh, liberal government, uh, and now I guess a couple of years of conservative government, that lost support uh, for the party in that region, or or maybe it was things in the region that changed? And do you think it's possible for the Liberals to win back the Southwest uh, and the GTA seats that uh, were important for winning in 2014, for example? Uh, absolutely. I, I think it depends what uh, what's on offer from the various parties and, and how the leaders 
sort of plan out their campaigns and what their priorities are. But I do think it's possible. The truth is, I think over the last couple of decades, there's been a very significant progressive majority in Ontario. And for the most part, it has elected progressive governments. But in the last election, uh, that all fell apart. You know, it's really just how the votes are counted and shifted between the Liberals, the NDP and the Greens in different elections. And so what we saw since McGuinty was elected was, you know, over time, basically from that initial uh, couple of elections, a slow decline in the Liberal vote. And it was leaking into the NDP and it was leaking into the Green Party at different times. And that coalition just got fractured to the point where the Conservatives could win and win pretty large, not such a huge number of votes. You know, they, they certainly gained, but it was really the fracturing on the progressive side of the ledger that, that let them get as many seats as they did. And so I think the path back to um, government is really through the mid-sized cities in southwestern Ontario. I think if uh, any party can win those and they can do well in Toronto uh, and Ottawa, they can put together a pretty good uh, coalition. But I think, you know, it's not just the mid-sized cities. The Liberal Party in particular has really got to get reconnected with rural areas and the issues that they care about, the kind of specific things that are going on in southwestern Ontario. I think that's, you know, since 2007, let's say, uh, really had been disconnected for a long time and the party in structured atrophied. And I think if we're going to field really great team of candidates, we really have to do the hard work of rebuilding the party in, in rural southwestern Ontario. So we've got a great field of candidates to go. Uh, and people see that when they when looking at the Conservatives and saying, do we want to give these guys another shot at it? Or do we want to have somebody new think they need to know that it, the Liberal Party is the best team for them? So I think it's possible. It's just going to take a lot of hard work. That's interesting. Do you think that the rural areas outside of London would consider themselves to be substantially different, for example, than the city of London? Like, is there a, a sort of a, an urban and rural divide even within the southwest that you um, that you would say is a part of the reason why the liberals have won some of the more rural seats around the uh, mid-sized cities in the southwest in, say, 2003 and 2007, but never really swept the region. And those seats that, that sort of started to first bleed away were really those rural ones surrounding the mid-sized cities. Do they have a different perspective, or is it simply a matter of, of the, uh, the organizational capacity that you mentioned previously? I don't know. You know, I, I've lived uh, 12 different places in Ontario. Like I've been around for almost 40 years. I've only spent three of them in Toronto. So most of my life I've been outside of Toronto. And, and I would say if you're in a small town, you know, this, this, whatever the biggest city close to you is a bunch of city folks and they don't understand, you know, your small town issues. And uh, similarly, I think people in, in cities often think about people in rural areas as like, you know, they're so slow and they don't really understand what it's like to live in a city you know it's, they just think that everyone is that is very different and i think the truth is that people are more similar than they are, are really different a lot of the issues are the same a lot of the political outlooks and values are the same but we we have an electoral system that really rewards people who can get 35% 40% of the vote and win and you look at the electoral map and you think wow there's such a huge majority for the Conservatives in rural Ontario. And it's not, that's not really true. But it, they just get enough votes to win consistently. And people start thinking, well, they're just Conservative ridings. The truth is there's lots of progressive voters in all the rural ridings, all over southwestern Ontario, eastern Ontario, northern Ontario. We, we just have to go and get them. And I think it's a bit of an attitude change uh, that's needed where you say, okay, there's lots of progressive people here. Let's figure out what specific policies are going to actually work there. Get some good candidates uh, who, who think that's the right vision. And then you have to actually resource them. And I do think that's the infrastructure difference. You know, you have a two decades of not winning, you know, resources, the party infrastructure atrophies, it makes it hard to actually put together the organization to win. You can have great policy and you can have a great leader, 
But if you don't have uh, some infrastructure and some resources, it's pretty hard to put up a good campaign where you can win. One more follow-up on that same topic. Looking at specific policy areas, one of the things that that people have pointed to that has caused a lot of uh, frustration in the Southwest uh, was wind turbines. Seems to be a sort of a a flashpoint issue that people have credited with sort of a lot of the McGuinty government's support there falling away. What do you think was the biggest issue with uh, the Green Energy Act, for example? How should governments look at fighting climate change in the Southwest? Is it a different kind of approach that's needed, for example, than in cities? Um, and are there any other issues like like this that you would point to as being particularly good barometer of the difference in political perspective that the, the Southwest and maybe Toronto uh, have had over the past couple of decades? Yeah, in some ways, I think it can be sort of like death by a thousand uh, cuts. So I'll give you an example from the Green Energy Act one. And it seems like a long time ago now, but I guess it really wasn't that long ago. But, um, you know, when the party and the uh, government uh, canceled the uh, gas plants in the GTA and they moved them, (laughs) they moved them down to Sarnia, that was not seen by people in the Southwest to be a very positive thing, right? It came across as uh, very self-serving and very GTA focused, and it really reinforced the sort of pre-existing brand about the party, which was they don't really care about us and, you know, they'll stick their bad thing over here, but they won't put it over there because that's where their voters are, right? So we're not their voters. And it just reinforced this idea that that they're not cared about by the party. And that is a tough thing to turn around when you're, you're sort of reinforcing it with other things like, well, we'd like to put some wind turbines and where do the wind turbines go? Well, to places where people don't want them. Well, where's that? Oh, Southwestern Ontario. You know, that just doesn't go over well, where all the green energy stuff, you know, what is perceived as being bad is in southwestern Ontario, and the benefits are are widely shared. And so I think, you know, that that is in retrospect, I think everyone can see sort of some of the problems with how some of those things were done. I think the party and, and the people in charge at the time were trying to do the best they could to try and turn the economy around, trying to change how we're generating power. They did a great job of getting rid of coal, which is a major accomplishment. One of the best things that's been done by any level of government in Canadian history was getting rid of coal power in Ontario. But it came with some bad decisions, which was you know pushing some of these things that really, from a generation perspective, were not generating a ton of power in a way that you know kind of felt like being... Uh, people were being pushed around by Queen's Park and they didn't like it. And so the la- I think the worst approach is to kind of push around rural people, small town folks, uh, put stuff they don't want in their backyard and uh, just say tough. You know, it's important for climate change reasons because you know, farmers and rural people, they're really on the front line of climate change, right? We've got Lake Erie eroding, you know, roads you know, just, just a couple of miles from where where I am right now, it's not really that far away. And it's just ripping into the countryside and ruining a lot of people's livelihoods. They can't get to their cottages. They can't, you know, they're moving the roads they're having to rebuild things. These really big problems. Yeah, the overland flooding has been a, a, a big issue in a lot of communities, yeah. especially around Chatham, Canton, Leamington. Ex- exactly. Like major, major problems, right? And farmers have to work with the climate and they're at risk. You know, if there's major events, you know, big rains, late rains, all these things that come and are more, more common from the climate that's, that is changing, that causes a lot of problems for farmers. So, you know, they're not uh, unconcerned about these things. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes when we talk about these kind of policies, we sound like a bunch of city folk who think rural people just can't keep up. And that's not the right way to approach rural voters. They're very smart. 
they, lots of them are very progressive. They want to do things that are good for the environment. Like it's a top priority for a lot of rural people, but you can't be kind of hectoring them from Queens Park. That doesn't work. Yeah. So Jesse, I, I want to finish off just with um, bringing you back to, to COVID and in terms of all the things that the, the city is doing right now. And I saw recently that there were some mayors calling for and some councils calling for some support from uh, from Queen's Park and from the provincial government. Is that is that something that uh, that you're looking for right now? The focus uh, right now is certainly on getting support from um, the provincial or the federal government. And I tell you, the financial picture for municipalities because of COVID is very bleak. You know, and I think all levels of government were quite right to focus in on people first and try and get people the basic uh, income that they needed to get by to stabilize people's financial situations so they could do the right thing and stay home, right? When the public health message is stay home, you got to avoid transmitting the virus. It's really important that people have that basic um, income security so that they don't have to do things like go out when they shouldn't. So they were right to do that. But now, you know, after we've dealt with some of the more pressing business uh, liquidity problems, now we have to unfortunately deal with the liquidity problems that, that cities are facing. And, you know, we rely on the property tax. We already had approved property tax increases for the next four years in the neighborhood of 4% on average every year. Um, and so we were already pushing the property tax base pretty far. And now we have something like $39 million, uh, you know, extra operating costs on top of what we would originally thought. That's a combination of basically less revenue because f- transit is running fare free, higher expenses because we're having to keep running services in some cases doing a lot more. Like we moved a bunch of people who are in emergency shelters into motels, you know, people who are on the street into motel rooms to try and get them isolation space. Uh, so we're incurring a lot of extraordinary costs and we can't run a deficit, right? The province has no deficits for municipalities. So um, we're in a really tough spot and it's going to require something on the order of probably $10 billion at the federal level for all the municipalities. Like that's like 3,800 municipalities in the, in the country just to deal with the short-term problem, uh, let alone whatever the longer-term impacts will be, you know, whether people are going to be able to pay their property taxes. You know, if the property tax arrears uh, go up in London, like 1%, that's $6 million just for London. And that that is something we saw happen in the recession, 2008, 2009, and it stayed elevated for several years. So, you know, these are very serious financial problems and we need some kind of stabilization from either the province or, or the federal government. I think what we're seeing, though, is that some provinces are in the position to help and other ones are not. You know, some provinces went to the debt markets recently and there are no buyers. Yeah. So thank you, Jesse. Before we let you go, we're not always just talking about policy here in Ontario Loud. We like to keep things a little bit fun. We want our listeners to uh, better know the these regions that we're going to introduce them to. And a, a quick Google search showed some pretty fantastic and famous Canadians coming out of London and the and southwestern Ontario. So you know, people like the Eric Lindros and. Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer as some athletes. You got the Beebs and Ryan, Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling coming out as actors. Who are your favorite sort of little-known Londoners or Southwestern Ontarians that uh, you want people to hear about? Well, not little-known, but uh, definitely people should know uh, from London is Frederick Banting. And uh, in that, in my ward, actually, is a Banting house, which is a National Historic Site. This is a guy who was um, you know, decorated for his service in the military, comes up with insulin, saved millions and millions and millions of people worldwide because of not only finding insulin, but also making it available at a very low cost. 
you know, he's a Canadian hero and a lot of people don't know that he uh, grew up and was living, you know, just about around the corner from where I live. I could probably walk to his house in uh, five minutes. So, you know, he's a really, really great Londoner. Um, for environmentalist uh, folks, uh, David Suzuki also has pretty tight ties into London and his family were actually home builders on a small scale building homes in London for many years. And there's lots of people actually who've come out of uh, London, especially from London Central a secondary school, which I didn't go there, but I can tell you it's one of the best schools in the country uh, for for um, high school. And uh, tons of graduates from there have gone on to do amazing things. One of them I, I just found out was is doing a research on COVID-19. She's out east right now, but she's doing research on uh, coming up with the vaccine. And, uh, you know, she was a grad from Central. So lots of great people from uh, London. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jesse, for coming on to the pod. Thank you for the work that you're doing for your for your city and for your region. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much, guys. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to send a huge thanks to Jesse Helmer for coming on to Ontario Loud. That was an amazing discussion. I would love to do more episodes like this. Uh, this was actually Alvin's idea. Maybe a little byproduct of him traveling around the province running for Ontario Liberal leader is that, surprise, surprise, there are more places in the world than Toronto. And uh, I certainly feel like we've been guilty uh, a little bit of being too Toronto-focused just because you know, it's where we live. But it's a big province with a lot of stuff going on. And really want to thank Jesse for coming on and bring that and bringing a London perspective uh, and telling us a little bit more about the place that he comes from. We'll be back on Friday with a podcast about the news this week. And in the meantime, we'll just say that Ontario Loud is Grima Tower Kapoor, Sam Mandry, Lexi White, myself, Chris Martin, Alvin Tejo, Aisha Anwar, and Harmon Mundy are our social volunteers. We love doing this podcast. We'll see you on Friday. Until next.